Empower Radio presents the Dr. Julie Show, all things connected. Break through the illusion of separation, explore the infinite field of possibility, and make connections that inspire. Now, here's your host, Dr. Julie Kroll. Hello and welcome everyone. You're listening to the Dr. Julie Show, All Things Connected. Each week we gather right here to make connections that break through the illusion of separation. And I trust something you hear in the next hour may just open you to a new way of looking at religious differences. Hmm. And maybe even religious freedom and gender equality. As our world is reeling with questions, concerns, and disagreement of how to live peacefully within religious freedom, there is a profound need for people to understand how the religious traditions relate to one another, what they have in common, and how their remarkable differences are dwarfed by their even more remarkable common ground. Gandhi said, I am a Muslim, a Hindu a Christian, and a Jew, and so are you. In one of the more popular poems, Rumi wrote, I am neither Christian, nor Jew, nor Muslim. I know none other except God. Gandhi belongs to every religion. Rumi belongs to no religion. So it is with all those who belong to God. Our guest today says, those who tread the path of divine love belong to all religions, and in a sense, they belong to no religion. Intriguing, huh? And then we have the question of gender. Where do women fit in when they have been left out and oppressed for centuries? I invite you to take a few deep breaths, bring your awareness into this moment, open your mind connect with your heart, and settle in with your essential wholeness as I introduce our guest. A leader in the interfaith spiritual movement, William Keepen, is a mathematical physicist, an environmental scientist, author, and has been a practitioner on the contemplative path of divine love for over 35 years. He co-founded the Satyana Institute, and Gender Reconciliation International with his wife, Reverend Cynthia Bricks. The Satyana Institute is a nonprofit service and training organization based near Seattle, Washington. The Institute's programs have been conducted in venues across the United States and in India, South America, excuse me, South Africa, Australia, Kenya, Croatia, Colombia, and the UK. His latest book is Belonging to God, Spirituality, Science, and a Universal Path of Divine Love. Welcome, William. Thank you, Julie. It's a joy and privilege to be on your show. Mm. Well, thank you. It is a joy to have you here. I'm just holding this beautiful book, and it has this gorgeous cover of this golden fractal and it's incredible and I'm so intrigued that a scientist a a mathematical physicist and an environmental scientist has spent 35 years on the contemplative path I'm just so happy to bring your voice to our show today but we do have a traditional first question Will and I like to ask this of all of our guests so I'm going to I'm going to start with this and if you could share with our listeners what does all things connected mean to you? 
all things connected speaks to the essence of what is because all things are actually ultimately only one thing. So even saying that they're connected is a little bit misleading because it implies separation with connection. And although that is how it appears, and in some sense there's truth to that, on the absolute level, there's no separation at all. All things are actually only one thing. And, but the connection is important once we come down into the realm of mind because the mind creates divisions. And so it's important to start from the place of understanding that all things are connected, even though they appear separate. Mm. That is such a really good and relevant point that sets a foundation for our conversation together because um, there's really science is doing its part to really explain this oneness like you talk about in the book and spirituality and mysticism um, comes in from another angle and we're looking at this and saying is this the same thing i'd love to start there if you wouldn't mind will with your experience and um i i would just love to know who is will keepin this doctor who's studied these incredible incredible sciences and has been this practitioner for over 35 years. Well, you know, it is probably glimpse experiences of that oneness that led me into this. Um, first of all, science itself is a quest for those universal truths that hold everywhere. I mean, from Newton to Einstein, you know, Newton had the apple falling on his head and realized that the force of gravity that pulled the apple to his head was the same force that holds the earth in the orbit around the sun. So that was essentially a unitive insight, or you could even say a fractal insight when he realized the small little gravitational force on the apple is no different from the huge gravitational force on the earth. They, they are one. Um, Einstein also and all of quantum physics seek to express universal laws of physics that apply everywhere. So there is a fundamental quest in the human soul for what is ultimately true, what transcends even our lifetime, space and time that we can rely on and place our faith in in an absolute way. And the, the answer is there is something and it is this oneness that you speak of. And in the religions, it goes by different names. But oneness is a good term. Um, Advaita in the Hindu tradition, Tawheed in the Islamic tradition, um, they have these different names for it um, in the different traditions. And in science, in the kind of contemporary science, for example, quantum entanglement is an expression of this, where all things are interconnected to all other things. So there's a fundamental interconnection between the neurons in my brain and the galaxies. Um, and not only are they interconnected, but in fact, they're structured very similarly. And if you look in an electron microscope at neurons in the brain and you look through our telescopes out to the deepest reaches of space, you find very strikingly similar structural patterns. So there is a oneness that inheres in all of existence. And mysticism or mystical experience that comes through spiritual practice gives one a personal experience of these this oneness at some point along the journey and a kind of an illuminative experience and once that happens one realizes this deeper interconnection that transcends the apparent physical separation of of matter and events in space and time mm. 
And that really was what led me into this. I, I uh, having some early uh, mystical experiences in meditation and realizing this was something that science proper did not cover. It did somewhat implicitly, as I was saying, they talk about, you know, these universal principles that are true across all of reality, but not in a direct way that the spiritual traditions do. So I felt personally, you asked about my personal story. I felt a personal need and quest to delve into the spiritual practice and wisdom traditions to complement and supplement what I had learned in my scientific training. And then putting the two together has really been a long 35-year quest because in the uh -huh. face value, they are supposedly contradictory and even mutually exclusive. And <clears throat> it's true that many scientists deny the validity of uh, spiritual and religious truths or their value. Um, but for anyone who takes an open and honest and full-hearted inquiry into both arenas, I think one sees that they are both parts of a larger whole and need to be brought together. And that was what the purpose for my book. And a number of other people have also made these attempts, but I wanted to do it around the path of the heart, because I feel that the heart is the unifying force center, both in the depths of the human being and in the depths of the divine being, whatever that may be, or she mm -hmm. may be or he may be. I love that non-scientific mystical language you're using too. <laughs> so, so thank you for that. I want to go into the heart, but first I have to tell you, Will, when I got your book, um, again, I just, the cover was so intriguing. It's so gorgeous and so relevant when you're talking about this fractal inside, it's like, wow, it's gorgeous. But the very, you, you won't guess, the very first page I intentionally opened to is the appendix two that says science and mysticism are not the same. And so I'd love for you to just give us a glimpse of what you're meaning there, because I think it does take us into the heart and a, a greater reverent conversation, but we're saying it's all the same thing and yet it's not the same. Yes, this is a very, this is a bit of a paradox because at one level it's a oneness, right? And so if we assert a oneness, then all things <clears throat> are inherently somehow the same. And, and, and I'm not denying that. But when I say science and mysticism are not the same, I mean in terms of a form of inquiry and in terms of what they are focusing on and revealing. Today's science, especially mainstream science, but even the new science, apart from a very few exceptions, focuses primarily on matter-energy interactions and seeks to explain the phenomenal world <clears throat> through empirical observations called you know, experiments and, and data collection. And then you basically take those data and you seek to explain them through reason and rationality, which is an exercise of the mind. And that has its place. That is very valid. Um, but spirituality is really very different. Spirituality seeks to go for the truth that is beyond the mind. And as generally acknowledged across the mystical traditions, this requires a process of emptying oneself and stilling the mind. And then one comes into a perception of reality that is beyond mental um, knowing and mental cognition. <clears throat> and in fact, that is not sufficiently understood. There is such a beautiful correspondence between some of the discoveries and 
you know, particularly the new science like quantum physics and relativity theory and evolutionary biology, complexity theory. And of course, I write about them myself. I'm very enthused about these parallels. But we should not, we should be very careful not to posit a facile equivalence between the two, as we often see, like that the, the, the mystic, the physicists are the new mystics, this kind of thing. Uh, it's just not true. Uh, the majority of physicists um, have no mystical practice whatsoever. They have no experience of delving into those deeper realms. Most of them don't even value such an endeavor, um, maybe at a distance, but they haven't delved into it themselves, and they haven't cultivated what I'd call a contemplative epistemology, a, 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 an actual disciplined approach to an introspective inquiry into the nature of reality that goes beyond the mind. That is something that most scientists have absolutely no experience with. And so this idea, you know, that, you know, kind of the science and non-duality cutesy phrase, ohm equals mc squared, it's a cute formula, but um, it's it, it kind of contributes to that sense that, you know, Einstein and quantum physics are suddenly discovering the, the same truths that the mystics have known for years. Um, and I think that is overly trivializing the reality. Science, for example, is just now on the verge of discovering that the human consciousness survives physical death, something it's been in denial of for hundreds of years. Um, when it gets there, it will have reached the very beginning of the Bhagavad Gita. The first teaching Krishna gives in chapter 2 is that the, the person does not die when the body dies. Science is about to finally acknowledge that. Well, that means it's, what, 2,500 years behind mysticism in a way? So there's a lot of ways of looking at this, but I think it's important not to equate our contemporary cutting-edge scientific understanding with the depths of mystical realization. Thanks for explaining that, Will. I think that's an important piece. I know in the book you talk a lot about the mind and non-duality and the differences between the path of love and the path of wisdom. And and you're writing about this universal path that you have found in all traditions, that the path of the heart. And I I, I love I love how you've really made this coherent understanding about this path for the readers. Do you want to talk about this? What is the path with love, the path of love, divine love? Well, it, it, thank you for that question, because I too love it. It's because I feel there's so much, uh, and understandably, there's so much critique of religion these days um, for all of the shadow side of religion, which I don't deny at all. I mean, it's certainly there. But what's happening is the baby's getting thrown out with the bathwater. These traditions have a very profound, um, exalted path of the heart <clears throat> that is hidden in their depths and I think needs to be brought to the fore and really celebrated and uplifted uh, for two reasons. One, just because it's there and because it's real, that alone would be a reason to bring it forward because that is the true meaning of these traditions. But the second and very important contemporary reason for uplifting the path of the heart, it is in that path where the different religions meet as one. It is in that path where we see that the transformative journey of the soul is essentially identical when we look at the different 
traditions and we look into the path of the heart that they all contain, we see that the basic elements of the journey, the processes of purification and illumination and union, as they're called in the Christian tradition, but these processes exist in the transformative journey of the soul in all of the religious traditions. And so we urgently need a unifying understanding of the different wisdom traditions of humanity that unifies rather than divides. And so that's just speaking to why I think it's so important to articulate this universal path of love. And then And to answer your question, what is it? You know, there is in the depths of every human being this this amazing mystical power of divine love that dwells in the depths of the heart. And when we learn to tap that, and then we learn to go into that inner journey that it invites us upon, that force of love will propel us through the various stages of this path, stages of kind of purification and relinquishing, you know, false beliefs and egotistical attachments and this kind of thing. And it just keeps going. It takes us into states of illumination and ultimately into states of direct experience of this oneness that we were speaking of, that unity with the supreme reality, as it might be called in perhaps a Buddhist sensibility, or with the Godhead, as it might be called in the theistic traditions. But that the bottom line of this path is that the inmost essence of the human being is none other than the transcendent essence of the absolute divine. And that this is true across all the traditions. And so that is why this path of love is so vital, because it is the pathway through the heart to realizing that union with God. Mm. I want to pause right there, Will, because I think this is a really, really powerful um, construct of medicine for humanity right now. And just the reference to the mystical power of divine love in the heart, um, when understood, I think is incredibly transformative. Like you talk about the transformative journey of the soul. So I'm wondering if we could, number one, you, you define God in the book. And I think it's worthy of, of, clarification today of what what is meant by God, who or what is God, when we're talking about belonging to God. But then also, I'm curious, I'm doing a two-part question here with you, Will. I'm curious how you would define this divine love, because in our culture today, we have many definitions of love and I think it's really important to really hone in on that mystical power and that transformative power of what we're talking about here. Yes, thank you. It, it is. It's a very, it's a very important uh, form of love. And and just a little vignette. People often ask me. Um, how did you come from being a scientist, uh, then moving into this whole arena of gender equity and reconciliation, and eventually to this whole interspiritual path of divine love? And I say, well, it's actually very simple. Um, to me, science is a quest for truth. And the deepest truth is love. And the deepest form of love is divine love. So it's actually a fairly natural trajectory to go from science to divine love, in my view. 
Um, uh, to answer your question about what is meant by God, and I deliberately chose to use God language. I thought about not using it um, and giving the book another title, um, but I wanted to be um, perhaps slightly even provocative and also to kind of reclaim God because there's been so much rejection of religion and books like God is not one and God is not great and all of this that we've been seeing, the end of faith, you know, the new atheism, which I find um, quite frankly really of poor quality. If you want real atheism, go to the quality atheists, who, most of whom lived hundreds of years ago, but there are contemporaries like Michael Ruse at the University of Florida who really do justice to atheism atheism. But so so feed your desire for atheism on quality and not junk atheism. So that would be one piece. But the second thing that I would say is that God is really, you know, it's it's very much understandable that it's objectionable for all the reasons, because, you know, that people have perceived and God has been portrayed as sort of a punishing, you know, tyrant, or, you know, the false, of course, the false attribution of the masculine gender to God is a huge problem, um, you know, and then, of course, the absence of objective proof that God exists. And, you know, the idea that God as creator is not even considered the proper, you know, ontology in the Buddhist traditions, and these naive images of God as a man with a white beard, all of these reasons are legitimate reasons for why people reject the notion of God. So, but what I do in this book, first of all, because the traditions that I take up, which really are the theistic traditions, they all posit this notion of God. And not only that, but they all basically give a fairly similar description of God as this all-powerful uh, and profound uh, transcendent being that is the source of all of existence. So what I do in the book is I turn to uh, one of my mentors, uh, Father Thomas Keating, who is a remarkable um, Cistercian uh, monk and priest who convened groups of religious leaders from all the different world religions at his monastery for over 32 years. And that group, working together over those years, came up with a set of what they call points of agreement around the nature of the spiritual journey. And they gave essentially eight points of universal agreement. This is across, you know, Christianity, Protestant, Catholic, uh, Buddhism, Islam, Judaism, uh, Sufism, Native American, Buddhism, including Theravadan and Tibetan and Zen and Taoism. Uh, so it's really quite profound that they all came up with these points of common agreement that they could all agree on. And those eight points essentially offer, in effect, a kind of definition of God, in which basically what, and, and they call it ultimate reality, uh, because some people object to the term God, but basically they speak to the fact that all the world religions bear witness to the reality of some supreme principle to which they give various names, and that it cannot be limited, uh, it's infinite, and that it is the ground of all and ground and source of all of existence. And basically, the bottom line is that the human consciousness can be united with this supreme reality, in which case one experiences love and joy, or one can be separated from it, in which case one experiences weakness, suffering, and illusion. And this is the fundamental case across all the great world's wisdom traditions. And so God understood as really the supreme, infinite, uncompounded reality out of which all things have emerged is more or less how I would quote define God. Mm. How about love? 
Love. Well, mm. as Ruby says, it's very dangerous <laughs> <laughs> when we when we, we try to define love, and you know, to to we speak much of love, and even speaking much of love, we we basically <laughs> can betray its principles. Um, but you know, one way to understand love is that it is the first of all, it's the most powerful force in the universe. It is the force of connection. So we talked about connection, but it's also the creative force that gave rise to everything that exists. So love has this power of creation as well as this strong interconnection between things that are evidently separate or have been brought into separative manifestation on the physical space-time plane. And love connects them all. And in fact, I personally feel that what are called the four fundamental forces in physics which are gravity, electromagnetism, and the strong and weak nuclear forces, are actually just different expressions of this one universal force, this force of love. And that that force is, you know, essentially a spiritual force, which humanity still does not have. We can't measure it in the laboratory um, in the way that we can measure the effects of gravity and electromagnetism. And again, those are forces of which we can only measure their effects. We can't actually see the force itself. So even electricity and gravity are as hidden as is love. But um, so love is this, this force in the universe that also dwells in our heart and has the capacity to unite the human soul with the infinite source, because that's where we came from. Now, that may not be a very good definition, but that is a working uh, expression of the reality of how it functions. And then, of course, there's the phenomenology of love, the fact that we experience uh, love in our own hearts. And every one of us has experienced this, this sense of expansion and light and warmth and radiance that comes when there is that dawning awareness in the heart. And we then, what it does is it expands us and opens us. And ultimately, divine love expands us and opens us inwardly to the infinite. Mm. There's that poetic scientist coming out in you. I love that. Thank you so much. What a beautiful explanation of not only physics, but um, that attempt to divine, define divine love. It's exquisite. We are going to take a quick break. You're listening to The Dr. Julie Show, All Things Connected. After the break, we are going to explore a little bit more about what's going on in our world and how does all this apply to us right here, right now. We'll see you in just a minute. Listening to Empower Radio, an entire radio station devoted to your personal development, expanding your conscious awareness, and empowering positive change. Meet our hosts and listen online at empowerradio.com, on iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Stitcher Radio, or iTunes, or download the Empower Radio app for your smartphone or tablet. It's free in the App Store, and it lets you listen to our shows and podcasts on demand. 
Empowering people, empowering change. Empower Radio, online at empowerradio.com. Hi, this is Maria Menunos coming to you with some urgent news impacting families across America. Studies reveal that one in five children in America are struggling with hunger. That's nearly 16 million children who may not know where they're getting their next meal or if it's even coming at all. These kids need help and they need it now. But the good news is there's more than enough healthy food in this country to ensure that no one ever goes hungry again. And that's where the Feeding America nationwide network of food banks steps into the picture. They're out there every day collecting surplus food and helping to get it to children and families facing hunger. But they can't do it alone. Find out how you can help support Feeding America and your local food bank at feedingamerica.org. Together, we can solve hunger. Together, we're Feeding America. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. You don't usually get a stock tip from a 16-year-old, but I'm here to tell you about a different kind of stock. It's called Better Futures, a stock for social change that's not about making money. Instead, you invest to help students like me go to college. This is beyond a simple donation. It's the opportunity for America to invest in its kids and take an active stake in the future of the country. The return on your investment isn't money. What you get back is knowing you protected our potential. So one day, that potential can grow up to become surgeons and architects, executives and engineers, people who can change the future just by being a part of it. My name is Alicia, and I'm your dividend. Invest in better futures with UNCF. Visit uncf.org slash invest. A mind is a terrible thing to waste, but a wonderful thing to invest in. A public service announcement brought to you by UNCF and the Ad Council. Hey, Russell Wilson here, and I know how important exercise is. It's essential. It's essential. With Play 60, United Way and the NFL are helping kids stay active and play at least 60 minutes a day. Healthy kids. Healthy kids. But what this place needs is you. To donate or volunteer, go to unitedway.org slash play60 because great things happen when we live united. Donate, donate. Are you guys going to do that every time? Yes, sir. Brought to you by United Way and the Ad Council. An entire station devoted to your personal development. Welcome to Empower Radio. Now, back to the Dr. Julie Show. All things connected on Empower Radio. Welcome back. Hey, if you're inspired by our conversation today, I invite you to share it with others and maybe just listen to it again. You can do that by visiting my website at thedrjulieshow.com, where you'll find all the archive links as well as a listing of upcoming guests. And also stay connected all week on our Facebook page, All Things Connected with Dr. Julie, where we continue the conversation. I always love to hear from you, love your comments, your feedback. So thank you for doing that. If you haven't yet, sign up for my email list at again the drjulieshow.com also come play with us uh, lots of global co-creators gathering at goodofthewhole.com where we've got a really exciting campaign starting next week we're talking today with william keepen the author of belonging to god spirituality science and a universal path of divine love you can find more about william and the work he's doing in the world at path of divine love 
Again, that's pathofdivinelove.org. You can also find out so much more about the important work he's doing with the Gender Reconciliation um, Program at genderreconciliationinternational.org. Again, that's genderreconciliationinternational.org. And Will, you have a program coming up at Ghost Ranch. You're there a lot. I've seen you as a featured um, uh, facilitator there in the past, and you have another one coming up. They can, can they find out about your upcoming retreats and programs and what have you on your website? Yes, on both websites, um, the ones you just mentioned, pathofdivinelove.org focuses on really the topic of this conversation, and then uh, GR World, or Gender Reconciliation is what it stands for, but it's www.grworld.org, focuses on the uh, gender equity and reconciliation work that we do, and we have a number of those coming up. And we do workshops on the East Coast, uh, like at Rose Center and Ghost Ranch and other uh, retreat centers, Omega and Esalen at times, uh, the retreat centers around the country. Beautiful, beautiful. And your wife is your partner in the gender reconciliation and um, seems like just such a beautiful union of of your two voices. I really appreciate that. So thank you for that shortened. Yeah, we're both very blessed to be to be working together. Yes, she's been my uh, wife and primary colleague. Um, Well, we, we got married 10 years ago, but we've been primary colleagues for 16 years. And it's just I guess it's a marriage made in heaven. <laughs> mm, beautiful, beautiful. Well, I appreciate you shortening up that URL. That's grworld.org. Beautiful. So before the break, you know, we we're talking about this divine love, the path of divine love. And um, I want to come back to some practices and, and how that applies to our listeners here today. But I, I do want to begin with... Um, there's so much going on in our world and you know we've had protests for gender equality in the you know in this recent election we've had protests with um what do we do with religious freedom and our do we is there a threat when we talk about the muslims there's there's so much going on in the world and i don't want to get into the politics but i do want to get into how we as individuals on this path on this trans transformative journey of the soul and the path of divine love how can we move forward in this unsteady terrain you had a quote in the book i love this i just want to bring this in because i just wrote a book called fractured grace you quoted martin luther king and it says if we do not balance our pessimism about human nature with optimism about divine nature we will overlook the cure of grace how powerful is that in these times what what wisdom can you share with us about your observations, what's going on, and how do we as this collective on this transformative journey, how do we navigate this unsteady, uncertain path we're on right now? Well, thank you for bringing that quote forward. That quote to me is a key, um, which is that we it's very easy to get completely dissolved into despair at times like this. And I've certainly been there at times in my life, and I certainly did and have experienced in recent weeks um, uh, 
some pretty significant uh, states of depression in particular, which is not something I'm given to at all. Um, historically, it's never been an issue for me, but just seeing the magnitude of the injustice and the loss of essentially seeming ground that we have gained. So on one level, it is despairing, and it's a reality that we need to embrace our despair and transmute that into energy for action. At another level, what we're seeing is something that's really been there all along and is now coming to the surface. So in some ways, we need to see this. So, for example, the stories in our gender equity and reconciliation work, we've been hearing these stories similar to what's emerged in the last couple of months around the, the incredible degree of gender-based violence and violation that is that it happens in our society, and we often project it onto other countries and other cultures and other religions like they have this problem, as if we are healed and as if we have really, uh, you know, done the gender healing that's needed in society. And we have not. We have not. And this has become very evident. So uh, in this whole campaign, this election, and so I think it's a very uh, – it's, it's like the Chinese, you know, they have that wonderful uh, saying for the hexagram that refers <clears throat> to danger. We are definitely in a moment of danger, but that presents uh, both crisis and opportunity. And, or no, maybe we're in a moment of crisis and that presents danger and opportunity. That's how I want to say it. I think that's how it's said. So we are in a moment of danger, but also a moment of profound opportunity. And, you know, in terms of what is needed now, uh, first of all, we need to source ourselves in the depths of the heart <clears throat> and in the depths of spiritual consciousness so that we come from a place of not just reacting to the latest outrage, but actually coming from a considered response from a deeper place within. And how do we respond to this? So that's one thing I think is really important, is to uh, try to avoid reactivity and try to come into a place of deeper inner listening and asking, what is my role as an agent of healing and love now in the world, and how shall I act? I think that's a very important question for us to ask. And then um, as we do that, I think it's also important to recognize that despite the difficulties that we're facing and, and the, the outrages for which the protests are uh, appropriate responses on one level, and so they're very good that they're happening. At another level, you know, what are we going to now do to transform this dysfunction that's actually been there all along and is now just coming to the surface, really? The gender dynamic is an example. Um, the religious intolerance is another example. I mean, these forces have been there for a while. And, you know, my life's work is really about bridging these divisions in the human family with the gender divisions um, the religious divisions, because because underlying those divisions is a deeper truth of unity. And it's absolutely urgent that we come into not just a theoretical recognition of that unity, but an experience of that unity. Um, so, for example, um, the women's experience, for example, has been there's a whole arena of women's experience that men are basically unaware of and vice versa, a whole arena of men's experience that women are basically unaware of um, because we don't have 
safe, skillful forms for the deep truth-telling around these painful and intimate and vulnerable truths. That's really the essence of the work that we're doing in gender equity and reconciliation. And we're essentially conceiving the same type of work in bridging the religions. And there is another principle I would quote Martin Luther King on. He says it very beautifully uh, when he says that injustice and corruption will never be transformed by keeping them hidden, but only by bringing them out into the light and confronting them with the power of love. Well, this moment with all that's happening politically and, and kind of the social, uh, social upheaval that we're witnessing is a moment of bringing out that some of this injustice and corruption into the light. That's a good thing. And now our task is to confront that with the power of love and hold it in that transformative lens of the power of love. And that's where action rooted in, in essentially coming from a place of love is so absolutely essential. Mm. So not only, I'm just in, I just want to pause in that and just kind of swim around in your yummy words here and, and just the deeper meaning of it. Not only are we to source ourselves in the depths of the heart, but really the transformative power that, that exists from within there. And so, so here's, here's the next question. It sounds nice. It sounds lovely. And I even get in my work, well, it sounds kind of Pollyannish, like, yeah, right. How do we how do we hold this with love? Things are breaking apart, falling down, and 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 we're not acting very pretty right now as as a humanity. I think you used some really powerful words when you talk about your work with gender. It's reconciliation, gender reconciliation, and religious reconciliation isn't just tolerance. I would love for you to speak to that. Like, is it really possible for us to hold all of this in love? And what does reconciliation really mean? What is our capacity? What's our creative potential here? You know, I, I hear that the, the whole sense of Pollyannish, um, and maybe I'll just give an example of um because this is an example of reconciliation. You know, in one of our programs, we had uh, a woman who came <clears throat> to our program because she had experienced um, a really horrific rape um, a few months earlier, and she was preparing to face her rapist in court. And so in the course of the workshop, um, she ended up at some point telling her story as a witness to the reality of the experience of being raped. And it was a story that very few of the women and none of the men had ever heard, <clears throat> because these stories are kept hidden. You know, we don't have a space for these stories to come forward in a skillful way in society. And, um, and so what happened was one of the men afterwards said, I don't know how to be a man anymore. I feel traumatized. And of course, we all felt traumatized, um, but we worked with this man and helped him to understand that the reason that he was having this experience, first of all, of feeling traumatized, was that he had taken into his heart the pain of this woman, or part of the pain of the woman, which prior to this workshop, she was basically carrying on her own. And now 
he and the other men had actually opened their hearts to receive part of this pain and that they now carried in their own hearts and that was transforming his very identity as a man. And that is the key here is that when we can allow the experience of the other to become our own experience, that then has a mutually transformative effect because it creates a bridge across our hearts. And that is part of what has to happen now is that we need to be able to open to the pain of the world and experience it in our own selves and allow that to have a transformative effect on us. Um, and it does carry a risk. There's no guarantee, um, you know, in any of this as to what the outcome will be. But that process, I mean, in that case, that particular man um, was completely transformed through this work and then eventually became entered our training and he's now one of our trainers. So he is a transformed man who now helps transform other men. And so... And, and so somehow there is an alchemy here. That's the term I want to use, an mm -hmm. alchemy using, you know, the ancient Western mystical tradition in which we have to actually go into the darkness itself. And in the midst of that, we discover something new, some new light that emerges that then carries us through and transmutes the darkness into light. Now, granted, that does require good intentions on the part of the people doing it. I mean... This man had a sincere intention to heal. If someone comes into a process like this and has no wish to heal um, and no genuine desire to, to transform these dynamics, then I don't know. I mean, our work wouldn't be successful. Maybe other work would be. I don't know. But the work that we do requires a sincere intention to transform these dynamics. And, but when we have that, we have incredible we witness incredible transformations by going in and through the challenging spaces. And then we come the, out the other side into a new uh, discovery of the living reality of the one heart, which then gives rise to what we call the beloved community, which is the term that Martin Luther King used. Mm. Wow, it's powerful work that you're doing and so important. So thank you and congratulations for that, of really being the steward of this deep transformative work and healing on our planet. I wonder if um, I'm going to throw a curveball in here because I was thinking as you were talking about the reconciliation of gender and religion this is your life's work of both really holding up this both religion and gender and a lot of our um i'll just say challenges with religion as a culture has been this um this deep wound of women being oppressed by the church many, many religions. And, and you speak about the image of God that man and women are made in the image of God. I wonder if you can go a little deeper into that and look at the reconciliation of our, our gender equity as related to the religious traditions. Thank you for that question. And it is a, as you correctly point out, a supreme irony that these traditions that should bring forth the highest in humanity, principles of love and truth and compassion, not just tolerance, but active love and compassion, yeah. in fact have become the instruments of some of the worst patriarchal offenses and violations. That is a fact. 
And we cannot get away from that fact that the religions have been the vehicles for for tremendous and, and ruinous uh, oppression of women and oppression of non-hetero-identified people and repression of sexuality and repression of feminine epistemology and feminine ways of knowing. Mm. So that is a complete disaster that is replicated in really all the religions, even those like Baha'i and Sikhism that have gender equality somewhere in their scriptures. The reality on the ground is far less than one would have hoped for. So that that we have to face that. However, Having said that, the religions also contain, particularly in their esoteric wings, the solution to this issue. They all contain, in, as I said, in the hidden parts of the traditions, the sacred covenant and communion between the masculine and feminine. So, for example, in Hinduism, it's more evident, Hinduism and Tantric Buddhism, where we see the parity of the gods and goddesses, you know, and the, and the Tantric unions that are sometimes overpopulized in the West and misunderstood or, or exploited, but, but they are there, this, this kind of fundamental unity of masculine and feminine, and that the key to non-duality is the two merging into one. But we also see it in Jesus, uh, in the Christianity, um, particularly in the uh, Gnostic Gospels, so-called Gnostic Gospels, like the Gospel of Thomas, where Jesus says very explicitly, when the male and female unite, so that the male is no longer male and the female is no longer female, then, you know, then shall you enter into the kingdom. We see it in Judaism, in the Tree of Life, the mystical Kabbalah. We see it um, in all of the traditions. We see this esoteric strand in which masculine and feminine are merged into one. And so actually there is hidden in the traditions a secret of the heart. And it, it's one of the secrets of the path of divine love, where one comes to a place where one basically surrenders gender identity altogether and enters into a transgender state, if you will, or going beyond gender altogether, where all the different gender categories are united and one comes into what could be called the heart of the beloved. So. What I feel is so important in terms of gender and religion, or I would say gender and spirituality, is that gender is a doorway to experience that transcendent unity. And that, as it's said, there's a well-known saying that God enters through a wound, and we all know that gender is a very deep wound in the human family. And so I would say God enters more deeply through a deep wound. And what we have consistently experienced in this work over the past 25 years, working in nine different countries, is that ordinary men and women, when given the chance and given the right and skillful form, can actually tap into the depths of the beloved that transcends gender and experience that oneness that basically effaces the separation due to gender and separate personality. And that experience of unity is a very, very urgent need in the human family now. And it's also a great gift of this type of transformative work. Mm. Thank you. Thank you for going there with me. I'm going to go um, one more step further with us before we close the show, because I think this is important in our world today. You quoted First John where it says, perfect love casts out fear. And I think this is our good medicine for today. If we're listening really closely at this conversation, this divine love, this perfect love is really good medicine. So I'm going to just bring this up um, at the end of our show here. Do we need to fear Muslims 
And what do we do with all the rampant fear with the Muslims um, in this culture, in the Western world, and um, and ISIS and terrorism and, and all this all this going on? What do we do with fear? Five minutes yeah. or less. That's as hard. It's a big one. <clears throat> right. Well, fear is, in a sense, the enemy. Um, in a, in a certain sense, because fear contracts, fear paralyzes. Yes. And so the first thing we need to do is we need to actively cultivate love within our own hearts and truly take up a spiritual discipline that transforms our own imperfections and our own pockets of fear so that we can move through the world with less fear and when that happens, we will find that those states of judgment and loathing and projection will also dissolve with it because they're all rooted in fear. Um, in terms of, you know, fearing Muslims, this is really just propaganda to me. Um, it's not to deny that there aren't a few Muslim terrorists, but if you look at the number of mass shootings in the United States over the last five to 10 years, the vast majority of them are com com committed by regular old American citizens, the vast majority of whom have nothing to do with Muslims or Islam or anything. So, uh, you know, we've got a real problem. And we have Americans murdering Americans, yes. Um, but you're far more likely to be murdered by a regular old red-blooded American who was raised probably Christian or perhaps Jewish than you are by some Muslim terrorist who managed to sneak in over the wall or under the radar. So I think this is all largely a political ploy, um, not to deny that there isn't a reality and that basically we're, I think, basically only fueling the, the, the small minority of Muslim extremists We've had extremists throughout human history. So it's nothing new. And to just label them Muslim and then suddenly taint the entire religion of Islam in that way is really incredibly shallow, tragic, and mistaken. Because Islam is definitely a religion of love and peace. Um, anyone who takes an honest study of the tradition will find that. That's not to deny all the violations and egregious errors. But let's, let me just show you how shallow the logic is. Let's take science. Physics gave us the hydrogen bomb. Physics gave us nuclear weapons. Chemistry gave us the gas chamber, which wiped out six million in the Holocaust. Biology gave us anthrax and germ warfare. So we point to those things. We look that they all came from science, and we throw science out and dismiss it as inherently evil. Is that correct? Mm. You buy that? That's exactly oh. what we're doing with Islam. It's that shallow. I'm not denying the offenses that have taken place, but to, to throw out the entire tradition based on these aberrant applications of a few militant terrorists is just a profound tragedy. And it's a lie that the government apparently is seeking to exploit for its political purposes. But it is a lie. It is a foundational lie. It betrays, betrays the very heart of Islam. And the prophet, these terrorists, whatever they call are, the prophet himself says that anyone who harms a Jew or a Christian will have myself to face as his accuser on the day of judgment. So they're not going to get their little, you know, heaven with all the, you know, blessed nymph virgins. They're going to get the prophet himself accusing them before God if they would just read their own tradition. So it's not a religion of uh, to be feared. It's really our own fear and loathing. And we should more fear those who are purveying these lies and really push it 
to the core, which is one of the reasons I wrote this book. Anyone who explores the tradition in depth will find immediately that Islam is a religion of profound love and wisdom. And anyone who's ever been inspired by Rumi, and who hasn't? I mean, Rumi is the greatest, you know, mm -hmm. the greatest poet of divine love ever. And Rumi says very specifically that he is mere dust on the path of Muhammad, the slave of the Quran. And if anyone interprets his words in any other way, he deplores that person and their words. I mean, Rumi's very clear. He is a living embodiment of the sacred wisdom and essence of the tr Islamic tradition. Mm. This is the truth. This has been the truth for 1,400 years. You know, this little last 15 years of playing around with getting a new enemy after we won the Cold War, that's all it's about. Mm. It's incredibly shallow. And unfortunately, many people are falling into line, including really astute people who should know better. That's... Yeah. Very, very alarming. And, you know, we could go, we're right now in a very similar place that Germany was in the 30s. Uh, we don't want to go any further down that path. Yeah, yeah. So I'm going to prepare our listeners to pick up this book, Belonging to God, read it, study, and go to your websites, pathofdivinelove.org and grworld.org. Will, it was a pleasure having you with me today. I really appreciate our conversation. Thank you very much, Julie. I appreciate it as well. Thank you. Mm, thank you. And listeners, remember, together we're creating connections for the greater good of the whole. Until next time, I'm wishing you a world of love. Bye for now. <laughs>